I gravitated to industrial, there was what I called the pavement pig face paradigm, where there was like, it was very neatly split down the middle, and like half of us listened to indie rock, like pavement, semido, and the other half of us listened to industrial. It's like TV and pig face and shit like that. Revco. And yep, I have multiple revolting cocktails. Uh, you know, in the wax tracks box set and all that kind of stuff. I dated I dated a goth girl in college who had the one with like the acid burned steel cover of that box set. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah, that's dude. impressive. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Rutger Hauer in Blade in Blade Runner. You know, that's uh, that's Lost in Time, like Tears and Rain, like. But I, that's that was the gone. Po- that was the point I was trying to make earlier. Is like either side of that, it's still fucking peanuts. This is the stuff we liked. So it's sort of like the way it's sort of like the way that the generation ahead of us, you know, browbeat everybody with punk and particularly no wave, which all sucked. I fucking (laughs) hate all that fucking Alphabet City, Bowery, fucking no wave, horn scronk bullshit. Man, I fucking always hated that. And I hated getting these older critics like infecting you know, people like James Murphy and um, and even Nick Sylvester, they were they were getting sold on like, oh, you totally nobody ever talks about this was the most amazing. No, it was the same fucking 50 people, you know, with like a VHS camera and it was hard art, man, whatever. <laughs> You have people now who are who are editors and and in charge of the content that ends up in these places. Places like fucking MTV, you know, they have a responsibility not just to to help their writers understand contextually what they're talking about, but they have to balance their own biases. White male critics, our age, are every bit as guilty. They're more guilty, uh, or more guilty of just imposing their own like memories and making that the story, you know, like or, or like, just like so immediately redressing you know, who they are to align with, you know, the prevailing correct. There's some voices that we don't need to fucking hear. If your fucking parents are paying your rent and you live in fucking Williamsburg, shut the fuck up. (laughs) See, I just meant like people, you know, misremembering how the red hot chili peppers work. I don't don't even mean that. They sold out on mother's milk. They didn't fucking. I, everybody, everybody I know hated that band. They were like fucking wank off fucking. It was like funk. I mean, it's just funk metal, but without as much of the metal. You know, yeah, Flea is Mr. Credibility. He's, you know, oh, I was in suburbia. Whatever, dude. Uh, your band sucks. He was in Fear, wasn't he in Fear? That whole scene with Fear is just, those were all dudes that had been around for fucking ever. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like crime where it was like, ah, whatever. You know, you used to be glam guys and now you're trying on some new clothes with them. It was just like, it's the same thing. I mean, as much as I love fear, I really do. I love that record. I think it's fucking fantastic because it, it, the drumming is outstanding mm-hmm. and it's really well produced and stuff and all that blah, blah, blah said that's like a music critic band. If I'm asked to look at that from the perspective of what that's doing to the genre and to the audience and to the fan base, that's, you know, subscribing to this fear was a pretty big distortion.
I had to sum up the 90s in one sentence, it's what you got watching Beavis and Butthead. That's what the 90s was for me. The fuck? Nothing's on. Maybe we should do homework. Here's a bunch of shit. The doors have been kicked wide open. A bunch of dudes in suits are like, we don't know what's going on. Here's literally everything we can think of. Let's hope some of this shit sticks. You would see and hear all kinds of different things. Ween and Reverend Horton Heat and uh, KMFDM and Prong and Pantera and Tori Amos and like all in the same fucking show. King Missile. Yeah, yeah, and King Missile. <laughs> I stand by Happy Hour to oh, this day. Oh, God, Happy no. Hour is some fucking are, you, oh, are you like a ween fan, too? I like chocolate and cheese. Uh, there we go. Of course, that's the credible record. <laughs> but, you know, it was it, it was just this this cacophony of different things, and you can seize on any one of those things, and, and that was what you were into, maybe. I'll get up when I want, except on Wednesdays when I get rudely away. What the hell language is he speaking? <laughs> I don't know, it's like, I can hear some American words in there, but then it's like, I can't really tell what he's saying. Yeah, this must be English. <laughs> England sucks. <laughs> you know what is so amusing to me? When I see American writers talking about Britpop, none of that shit existed here. Not yeah. a single one of those bands did shit. Wonderwall got played on MTV. They tried to assist in breaking them nationally, and it failed completely the whole way through. The only two songs from Britpop that did dick in America were Wonderwall and Song 2. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of it didn't fucking exist. Not a single one of those bands charted here. No, no one, they didn't get played on MTV. Nobody gave a fuck for any of it. All the tours were a fucking mess. You would sell three fucking shows in the country and play to like 10 people everywhere else. Britpop did not happen in America. You don't get to pretend that story exists because it doesn't. Britpop was a totally isolated reaction to basically America. I mean, I guess there was train spotting, and that was kind of it's. That's '97, dude. On, I know. That's what I'm talking about. Like, I, it might you might as well be talking about the fact that I read the Illuminatus trilogy <laughs> that year. <laughs> you know, I mean, it has that much impact on mainstream American culture? Right. I read Infinite know? Jest in 2004. It was huge. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, that's the problem. And it, 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 is there a responsibility to correct that? Is there a responsibility? Yeah, because it's not a fucking blog. It's a publication. Right. It's a publication with like, you know, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of dollars in advertising. And in most cases, tens of millions of dollars in funding from venture capital firms because th the metrics are the thing that everybody has agreed on is valid. None of it is, but that's the agreement. So the agreement is all that matters. Mm -hmm. So even if you're trying to do good shit, if the good shit doesn't immediately keep the needle in the red, you're never doing it again. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a shame because, I mean, I, I do understand as a person who makes his living as a full-time freelance writer, like, you know, what sells and what doesn't. My family will eat off Game of Thrones for, like, a half a year. Like, I made so much fucking money in the last three weeks of Game of Thrones season six or whatever it was. You were you were pretty well the Game of Thrones dude. Guy, yeah. I mean, that's, I, mean I just fell bass-ackwards into TV criticism. Because I liked the books. I was, I mean, great tie in here to me. Yep. Game of Thrones right now mm -hmm. equals meatloaf in the 90s. <laughs> those fucking videos, I who was watching them, who was buying those records, 
I bought I I got Bad Out of Hell too because I liked uh, my dad loved Bad Out of Hell one and oh I was God. a Rocky Horror person you, you, and anyone oh in Rocky God. Horror like you're you a got a lifetime pass. You're a Rocky Horror guy. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow, that's a whole thread because then you got into industrial too. You were like a full on drama club kid. You do not even want to know. Look, can we take like a two minute break? I dabbled. I will say that I dabbled in drama club because of the girls. I'm not going to sure. bullshit you. Yeah, you bet. I was definitely that guy. But uh, I was, you can look at it that way. That thread, like drama club goths were a very different thing from skater punk goths. I was a full on, like, if you see pictures of like uh, Christina Hendricks when she was a kid, <laughs> like that is like, that was like. That was not me, obviously, but that was like my ideal. Yeah, you know? yeah. Drama club goth, hundred percent. I was. I brought. I would go to cast parties, and I would bring literally a duffel bag full of CDs <laughs> to play. And I was like the DJ. Yeah. We're gonna listen to fucking Angst by KMFDM now. <laughs> Live <gonna> on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure you played a lot of pig face during those. That one. Oh, you bet. No, up, oh, for sure. you're a fucking madman. That was a party jam. So was uh, was consolidated like a big sellout issue for you? No, consolidated was just you suck went around on everyone's mixtapes. Yep, the yeasty girls. Yeah, that yeah, was fucking awesome. It was just like yeah, it's like you got that on a mixtape from a girl, and you're like, all right. Well, you may not love it, but you better learn how. Cause All right, then, wait, wait, what would have been the breaking line? Meet Pete Manifesto? I listened to a lot of Meet Pete Manifesto. Dramatically removed, made to listen, made to be improved. Fight the hell and feed you, as every single thing that comes at you. I believe you are open to suggestions, allowed to make a choice. Lords of Acid. Lords of Acid. Uh, now, I hated that record. That was their glam record, the purple and ultra orange covered. What was that called? Voodoo You. Yeah, that record. I loved Voodoo Oh, you. man. That's, I'm friendly now with Coop, the guy who drew that fucking... Oh, and, right. And he, the comics thing. Shit. Yeah. And he's like, he's like that fucking record, that cover's going to be on my goddamn tombstone. It will. Like, I mean, people yeah. bought that, 100% bought that for, for the that cover. Record. That no for the question. Cover, absolutely. But that was, again, that was like, uh, I sit on acid. I got... Uh, from a girl on a mixtape. Nice. And I was like, mm, you bet. Darling, come here, fuck me up there. That was that was how half the stuff went around. It's like uh, just like kind of like funny, like uh, can you top this shit that people would put on mixtapes for each other. And and while we're all doing this, like the ten. 20, 50,000 kids that are doing this, probably <laughs> probably from pretty privileged backgrounds. Yep. What's in the top 10? Brian Adams, you know, the fucking Robin Hood song or whatever. Adam Stewart Sting, All uh, for uh, Love. Uh, all for Love! I think there's this sort of knock-on effects that the 90s had where alternative broke in a big way and became super successful. What happened in the aftermath of that was a conflation of success and quality or success and merit that no one's ever really shook. Elements of that flow through the veins of poptimism where like, well, if it's popular, it's worth talking about. And if it's worth talking about, that also means it's 
good. I think what it is, is it's when younger people get put in positions of authority to choose, you know, what gets invested in and what gets promoted. But if you look at it after Nirvana, what happened was that all the all the young A&R people got promoted way too fast and they all got fake indie labels like Lava and Atlantic and all this stuff. And they signed bands that had absolutely no, they had no business signing and promoting on a national level. You know, I think at this point I have to mention Juliana Hatfield in every podcast, but she was a very typical example of what happened where somebody who was invested in her personally, professionally, whatever, thought she was the best, you know, got to a position of power at Atlantic and then got fucking kicked the fuck out because um, they made a series of bad choices that didn't produce, you know, results and profits for the company they were supposed to be working for. And it, it all blows up with Hootie and the Blowfish's Fairweather Johnson. Yeah. Um, the whole 90s really ends there. The same way that Britpop ends with Be Here Now, the same year, the whole idea of like um, alternative mainstream fucking Third Eye Blind and all this other stuff, it, it was kind of like, well, we don't have to be angry and crazy and on heroin and smashing our guitars. Like that was, we've kind of got a, quite a bit of a hangover from that. Let's go watch American Pie and listen to Blink-182. And <laughs> I think people were like, we got it. We, we totally got the anger thing, but I just, it, it was so exhausting. When In Utero came out, I wasn't particularly impressed with it. But over time, I've only become more fixated on it. Um, my one-liner was, In Utero is junk. It's literally the sound of being a heroin addict. It's, it's the sound of being a heroin addict in a really, really famous rock band because the drummer writes half the songs off of either beats or, because he's not, you know, there's nothing going on. You know, the, the old cliche about heroin robbing creativity absolutely holds true there. I think Nirvana was a death over the course of five years of just dying and dying and being miserable. And it locked up with a lot of frustration that people had about mainstream culture. But eventually you're just it, it just beats you over the head and you become inured to this this concept. Like you said, the conflation of modes of thought, the idea of misery being authentic is exhaustible. And I think people got completely exhausted with it. And that's why Spice Girls made it in America. I yeah. don't know. Spice Girls and Hanson. I, I mean, I remember that so fucking vividly. Just like, I, just like it's over. Mm-hmm. I remember like when it happened even. Well, the Macarena yeah, was, too. The Macarena, I think, was the big thing where people were oh, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. that was the flashpoint. I remember that summer. I think, I don't know if it was 95 or 96, but I remember when the Macarena crossed over, it was like, oh, we haven't had one of these in like a long time. This right, is like right. the twist. This is great. The twist. Yeah. Like, I mean, Hanson was an anomaly because Hanson was like adorable in this no, way. But the same way. It was also like, it was like having a weird owl single on the radio. It was like, this is really cute. These kids are so kind. Like, this is great. Right. Everybody can be happy again. The Spice, I remember people trying to make sense of the Spice Girls being like, oh, well, the, the, the Redhead's a parody of Shirley Manson and the Blonde's a parody of Gwen Stefani. Like, that was that was where we were at. Where the try- fuck were you I, living? I'm telling you, that was like a whole thing. Like, they were, all, they were all parodies of existing. Like, that was how desperately we were trying to contextualize the Spice Girls. You were probably had- right, though, because of Simon. <laughs> he probably was doing that. I wouldn't put it past him. I think three times in my entire life. I heard a song and 
the first time through, I was like, this is going to be an absolute monster hit. And and two of them happened in the same year. It was uh, uh, Baby One More Time and Live in La Vida Loca. And the third was uh, Bad Romance. And I was just like, I, I, I remember, well, you know, I just like, I fold. It's weird. I almost think it makes more sense not to look in terms of decades, but to look in terms of five-year slices. Like, 87, 92, 92, yes. 97, and then 97 to 9-11 basically is its own universe. When Brandy and Monica, 98 Degrees, Britney Spears, like you said, all the stuff that happened in the very late 90s and Ricky Martin, it, it's it's fun. Like you, You're almost tempted to look back and say – Oh, well, you know, 9-11 was this bullet point at the end of this period of total bacchanalia and just, you know, dot-com money and, you know, genie in a bottle with a, you know, a teenage girl, like, being really overtly sexualized and all this stuff. And you're tempted to look back and think that way about it as a run-up, this cultural apocalypse as a run-up to 9-11 as this just, like, fucking scabbard just, like, stopping everything but the thing is, if you live through it, it felt that way. Yeah. It felt exactly the same way. The, I think uh, Brian Lee O'Malley, the guy who did Scott Pilgrim, uh, coined the term the dark 90s, which began with the Spice Girls and ended with 9-11, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm not I'm not suggesting I'm the first person to come up with it. I'm sure lots of other people have noted it. But it, it, it's not that – I guess my point is like you don't have to go back and look at you know books and, and, and sort over what was going on. But like you're so tempted when you hear about something like where were you the day JFK got shot or where were you the day before Pearl Harbor? Where were you on 9-10? And it's like, you know, I remember it and it did feel different. And it didn't feel right. It felt weird. Like people were getting paid crazy money to do nothing. Mm -hmm. There was just weird, crazy, like 1987 fucked up Wall Street money and, and investment money going yeah. around. I had a friend who was making $180,000 in 1999 to make mood boards for Flash websites. Yeah. I, was, I was an editor at the Abercrombie & Fitch Quarterly on 9-11. There really was, I think, a sense of, you know, the fall of Rome to that whole thing. Having lived through it, it felt like it, I guess. I just would reiterate that. That whole Puff Daddy period. But, you know, the, the, the Puff Daddy thing is really a great point to raise because I hated that shit when, when it was going on. To who liked like, it? I don't know I, anybody who liked it. All the all the hip-hop heads that I knew were all backpacker kids listening to Jerry the Damage and we were getting into turntablism and Peter Butterwolf. Here. Yep. And, Dr. you know, Shadow. DJ Shadow. Of course, yeah. We uh, were all Hanson like... Boy Modeling School. Yeah. We, Q, yep. Q, we were all like... We were all absolutely nuts for this new thing. Um, the Herbalizer, fucking DJ Food. Cool Keith. Yeah, yeah. And it was yeah. like, there was this huge shift where it was like, oh, wait a minute. There, you know, there's not, it's not, you know, just fucking R. Kelly and, and right. smooth jams. And it's not, you know, just like angry social rhetoric. The Wu-Tang Clan. Right. And I mean, big. of course, Wu-Tang was huge in, in just New Yorkifying it right. across racial but lines. It wasn't until I think it was complex did a feature of like the hundred greatest tunnel bangers, like uh -huh. the songs that they played at the tunnel. <laughs> mm -hmm. And like, that is one of a handful of pieces of music writing that I can point to uh, that completely changed my appreciation for something that I thought I had lived and thought I was capable of speaking on. But like, you know, you shift vantage points and it's an entirely different animal. After that, I was like, fuck, like banned from TV and and Simon Says, even all about the Benjamins, like these things had a meaning that I didn't know because I was just some fucking college kid and I was listening to Mezzanine and I don't know, 
the, the mainstream culture was so completely stratospherically divorced right before 9-11 in the, in the late, late 90s. Yeah. And at the same time, the indie culture was totally obliterated because mm-hmm. those bands were getting deals because you don't have to be on MTV now. The Warp Tour is coming up. These records are selling pretty good because all these 23 and 25-year-old kids are making a shitload of money. All these companies are paying ridiculous salaries right out of college. I mean, there are kids now out of college at entry-level administrative jobs that are making less in 2016 than I made in 1997. I mean, my best writer's... What the fuck is that? Dude, my first job job was not even technical. I still made a salary... at least relatively at par with what I hear, you know, kids out of college are making now. You know, I've, I've said it a million times. The best rate that I can get now as a writer with my resume and my decade plus of experience is exactly the same as the best rate I could get as a 23 year old kid. Jesus Christ. Yep. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into numbers, but I mean, obviously in the background, this is one of the dominant conversations I have. With people, you know, our age who haven't gotten the big opportunities. Yeah, I consider myself lucky. That's the thing. Like that's so fucked up. I've been a full time freelancer for three years, and I feel like I've only I've only really tried at it for three years, even though I was writing on and off for a long time before that. You found your voice though too. At the same time, like your stuff started getting so much more concrete a couple of years ago. It was you know it was clear that you were bankable. You can you can cook a meal. You know what I mean? You're going to get somebody to read the whole thing. I think that's true. Yeah, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that that are biographical that I won't get into. But like you know, I see kids, kids really. You know, people ten fucking fifteen years younger than me who you know gave it a try for a couple of years and like completely ran out of money didn't get the jobs that they hoped they would get and moved home and, and like need to figure out some other fucking thing to do. And, uh, and I feel fortunate. The only side you can be on for this, for this whole content wars thing is trading on a skill. And your skill is that you're a complete writer. You know, yeah, you're not writing infinite jest, but you can write content that will be enjoyable and, you know, intellectually rewarding and complete and, have some kind of at least editorial, you know, if not academic value to the reader that makes you, you know, memorable and bankable in terms of any magazine, forget the internet. Well, I hope so. You know, I've warned, I've warned like, like I'm fucking Gandalf, but like, you know, (laughs) I've tried to tell people who are younger than me, like, you know, in your own best interest, don't write quote unquote content. Like don't react to the thing of the day with the angle of the moment. Like you're, because you'll you'll fuck yourself in the end. The entire property that Bill Simmons and HBO have constructed, is writing is the only thing people are reading. I sent him this thing where I was just like, "There's good people that are there, but you also need to be selfish, and you need to recognize that you have leverage at this moment, and you may lose it in the future, and they're not going to reward you when you no longer have leverage. You're the most important writer at this site right now, and they need to change the relationship they have with yeah. you." in order to sustain that or you need to take that because it's your talent it's not they they haven't established shit yet they're not successful yet you know and even if they were you're still capable and entitled to go to the highest bidder they're they're kind of on the ride right now and whenever i see somebody take off like that i'm just like you know you're not fucking asking me what to do with your life but i'm going to fucking tell you right now i'm the only person that's going to tell you you need to fucking capitalize on what you have yeah. done your writing has put you here and you need to be an asshole <laughs> And you need to get – because what's going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? They're, they're going to get pissed and they're going to fire you? 
They're going to fire their most successful, most read writer. That's not going to fucking right. happen. And they're going to get over it. And then they're going to learn to respect you because you recognized, you know, your value. It's harder for people who are good to make a living because they're a threat. You want the young kid who turns out, you turn out to get them at just the right time. And, and they think they owe everything to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I would never have been this successful if Bill Simmons hadn't fucking, you know, let me write a bunch of crap for him on his site. No, you know, it's just not true. It's the same way Bill Simmons loves to think that, oh, you know, we did it all on Twitter and Facebook, man. Yeah, you were also, you know, one of the top paid fucking editorial celebrities at the biggest fucking corporation on the planet <laughs> for a period of a decade. Asshole. It's dangerous to me. They, they skew younger because they can pay less and they can control more, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I started to try and go on this tangent on Game of Thrones and then lost my own train of thought. But, like, y- you could you could shit out any fucking Game of Thrones take. And any, edit- any editor, like, worth their salt would be like, yeah, go right ahead. It's going to do very well for them. And, and because I actually, like, just so happened to have roots in the material that date back before the show... And what, you played Dungeons and Dragons when you were seven? <laughs> no, no. I just started reading the books before the show came on. It's like literally that simple. And I liked the books. So I started writing about the books. And it was because I wrote about the books that I was like, hey, I'll, why don't I write about the show too? Like, it, I mean, it's nothing complicated. But like, I just. Do they, have like, do they have like lycanthropes and stuff? Is Tiamat in Game of Thrones? No, Tiamat's not in Game of Thrones, unfortunately. I'm Gary Gygax fucking died in the wool, man. Gary Gygax is, is a huge uh, underexplored figure in the history of uh, American culture today. He is, he is the fucking fantasy Christ, man. I think uh, him and him – and, uh, as much as has been written about Jack Kirby, I don't think Jack Kirby gets even an iota of the credit he should get for shaping like literally the entirety of American culture today. You know, yeah, you got to give your fucking slice to Tolkien, but um, I think uh, American culture, as it often does, weaponized Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, American culture had no use for a guy who's sad because all of his friends died in the trenches. They're elves, but like, what's their power? <laughs> right. Right. Can they like see in the dark? Are they like super <laughs> fast and shit? Are they really good with bows? They have like plus five bows. He really could not care less. He's like, no, they do sing while they sleep though. They don't really <laughs> sleep. They kind of like yeah, remember like the, things and that's get a perfect, sad. That's a perfect fucking like, like Tolkien's version of a dwarf versus like, you know, the American version of a, a dwarf's like super strong and has like, you know, a battle axe and a hammer and kills everybody. Like the World of Warcraft dwarf, you know, mm-hmm. the whole the whole like cultural finesse of, of Tolkien's races is uh, definitely lost on us. <laughs> you could shit out anything. People would click on Moss. Like if you looked at the New York Times, like uh, 10 most viewed stories on a Monday during Game of Thrones season, it would be the A1 breaking news stuff, uh, the op-eds, and the Game of Thrones recap. I mean, it was nuts. You know, I think that mentality carries over. And like, How much of that do you think has to do with the codification of the internet, the codification of mobile delivery of editorial content? You know, if, if we had had this structure locked in when Sex and the City was on? Right. Or The Sopranos. There, there's this whole hang... I don't think of it as take culture. I think of it as hangover culture. Everybody just wakes up the day after the the work of you know art or entertainment is is presented to them and you just have this like two week hangover of well i thought this did you think this right. i don't know what do you i don't know that guy was a dick i'm glad he got his fucking head cut off or you know yeah i think but he actually represents white america 
And I'm glad that, you know, like it just gets so fucking spun out of control at this point. It's nuts. I mean, I, I do prefer a hangover culture, as you called it, to like the the culture of anticipation, because at least you're actually writing about something that exists. Oh, no, that's the shit, dude. You want to be writing about that Guns N' Roses record for like three years. Get fucking Chinese democracy fueled the whole birth of the Internet. <laughs> no, of course it didn't. No, but I you- hate that. I mean... But like when, when, like when, when Van Halen was prepping fifty one fifty, Van Hagar was coming together. I mean, that's hilarious that there's nothing fucking there. There's no record. There's nothing. You have nothing to talk about. You haven't heard anything. You have no idea. But you can still just like write these stupid fucking things about like what's going to happen. Drop culture, you know, uh, surprise yeah. release. I've had so many conversations with so many fucking people about this. And Kanye finally did it. And, and all of this stuff was about front running the media. You, you have the Internet. So the, the Internet is the way the media gets distributed, right? You don't need the fucking middleman anymore. So you can start fucking around with your media, talking directly to your fans, release it on the same day. And then they don't get a chance to say anything and then they have to like scramble to say shit quickly and so the stuff they say tends to get steamrolled by the fan it's better for everybody because you know the media doesn't get to fence it and they're just stuck being the same as the fans i mean i was dude i was saying this in 2006 right we have message boards i don't fucking need rolling stone anymore i can just go talk to other people you know this is 10 fucking years ago I've been thinking about this for 10 fucking years along these lines. I, you know, I'm happy that you're making a living doing it. But what I'm saying is not that it's not valuable or that you're not a good writer, but who the fuck is paying for that? I mean, I'm glad you're getting paid, Sean. But <laughs> who is paying for that? This is a question that's not getting resolved. No one's actually looking at the return on investment of all this fucking internet click shit ad fucking crap i'm i'm fucking telling you at some point there's a backbreaking moment coming where venture capital companies cannot afford to keep fucking putting 21 60 180 million dollars into complex well hopefully i'll be legit by then and i'll be it keeps getting fed up right it's a flip crate it's a flip frenzy right now they they, they just rebadge bandcamp they want bandcamp to be pitchfork so they can flip it because p- they managed to flip pitchfork and it's gotten so much more fucked up now because blind venture capital money is just like buying cool. There's something cool. I want to buy it. You know, we're not nurturing voices. We're not nurturing writers. That is the big problem that has continued to fester and we're not. And you shouldn't, I guess my point is like, why are you a freelance? You should be a fucking columnist at a major publication. I, you know, I agree with you. Uh, no major publications do. That's kind of the issue. Exactly. Um, why would they do that? Why would they want to give you a comfortable standard of living right. when they can pay six well, 23-year-old kids to write about Game of Thrones and then have one editor who has some semblance of understanding of the thing Google up a bunch of other articles and make sure they're not duping them and come up with like a, you know a couple of slants, get a rewrite together, and then you know for, for nothing, they, they're in the content sweepstakes. I, it, it boggles my fucking mind. And, th- and that's why I brought up the ringer thing. Because Simmons loves to paint this as some kind of fucking, you know, puritanic, I don't even know what. I mean, in fairness to myself, I was uh, up for, you know, I was one of like the final contenders for like the new TV columnist at Vulture. And they wound up giving it to a woman with 10 years of experience on me. So I can't really blame her for that. But if there's like a closing note that I want to end on, it's that the thing that I valued about shallow rewards is the specificity. Someone that I know on my Twitter timeline made a joke about like Newt Gingrich and uh, Pokemon coming back 
And she was like, to complete the trifecta, I want to get fingered in a 96 Chevy Cavalier. It was really funny. I mean, I like laughed out loud. And I was like, it's because she said a Chevy Cavalier. It was like the specific make and model of the car that made the joke. The same thing that makes comedy work makes criticism work and makes journalism work. And that's what I want. And, you know, there's all these incentives to go broad and go big and and tie things to current cultural and social and political markers that they didn't originally have anything to do with and that bothers me and that that what I what I liked what I've always liked about your videos and your podcasts is that like you don't do that like you dig into the specifics which is much more interesting even if it has less kind of like uh, market value I don't I don't know how else to put it Yeah.